As we go through your scripture this morning too, Lord, thinking about that a little bit, uh, just be reminding us of the opportunities you give us to share with others the hope we have of life in your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if there's a good passage for you to turn to in your Bible this morning. We're not in Revelation. We'll take a couple weeks off. By the way, the heater's not on, if you have not noticed. The boiler will not come on this morning. Yeah, I took my jacket off and promptly put it back on. Uh, No heat this morning. You know, the rent's really cheap here, and we love that, but there's a downside once in a while. This week is one of them, so if you've got a coat, you may want it on. Believe me, this is much warmer in here, though, than the nursery room, where our children are not located this morning. Uh, We'll get back into Revelation in a couple of weeks. I'm going to teach in the next two weeks on a subject or a theme that has been on my mind often and a lot. I confess, as I thought about this, and I've certainly had adequate time to prepare for it, I feel like no matter what I say this morning, I'll just be scratching the surface. And frankly, not just because it's a big topic. Good to see the Billens. Welcome back. Uh, it's a big topic, but also I think for me personally, it's one of those things that I've read about and thought about, but I still feel like at a personal level, it's something that I probably have a lot to grow into. So maybe together we'll be scratching the surface of this topic this morning. Uh, It's one that affects all of us probably, uh, this theme is probably one of the greatest items or issues or areas of of any of our lives, and the area that I'm talking about is fear. We'll be talking about fear today and next week, Lord willing. If you do a concordant search in the scriptures, you'll see that fear, fearful, fearfully, feared, some version of the term fear is used over 500 times. So this is a very, very common theme throughout the scriptures, both testaments. Um, You look through these verses, and I've looked through most of them, uh, you've got, uh, you can divide them up, don't fear in some cases, and do fear in other words, in, in other cases. Sometimes it just describes it, but if we kind of dice it up, describes fear in one category, says don't fear some things in another category, and says do fear sometimes too. It's interesting, when I looked up in my quote books on this theme, fear, almost without exception, any of the quotes on the theme of fear are negative. That is, do not fear. Don't fear. Fear is ignorance. Uh, and Lots of themes along that line. Now, there's some credibility in those on one hand. Uh, however, that's not the beginning and end of the story. The scripture has a lot to say about do fear. And that's what we'll be looking at this morning. Before we do that, let me define fear for you just so that we're all kind of singing from the same page, at least in general. You might have a little different definition than I'm Uh, sharing with you this morning, but as I've looked up in the dictionary and thought about this, this is the working definition for this morning. Fear is the emotion we experience when we face something that in reality or perception has power to harm us. It generally involves a desire to flee or escape or manage in some case, in some fashion. So let me say that again. Fear is the emotion we experience when we face something, someone, some situation that in our perception or in reality has power which can harm us. And generally the effect of that is we want to get away. So that's the kind of fear we're talking about this morning. Now on one hand, following up, and bear with me as I just talk about what we're talking about 
since fear is a response to protect ourselves, generally speaking, since fear is a desire to protect ourselves, it can be a very helpful thing. You know, pain, if you put your hand on a stove and it's hot and you burn your hand, the pain is a good thing because it tells you that you're hurting yourself. You know, if you were numb and felt no pain, you would injure yourself and not know it. So pain is a good thing. Well, similarly, fear sometimes is a good thing. Because there are things we should be afraid of. And that fear tells us you need to do something in this situation to manage it and to avoid harm. That's a positive thing. That's a good thing. Fear has a valid role for us, so we need to know that. Um, Also, think of it this way, too. When you are fearful, appropriately fearful, of something that has power or a situation that has power to harm you, that's rational. That's morally and intellectually astute. That is appropriate that you have fear, just as it's appropriate for you to have pain in some situations. So it's rational, it's appropriate, it's a desirable way of looking at life, to be fearful appropriately of appropriate things. The flip side of that, if you are confronted with a situation that should elicit fear, and you're not fearful, that would probably say that morally, intellectually, There's some deficit in you or in me if we're not fearful of what we should be fearful of. Okay? And also, if we are fearful of those things which do not have power to harm us or which should not elicit our fear, but we are fearful, that says, again, that morally or intellectually, we're off base. There's something wrong. So fear can be a positive thing, Scripture tells us not to fear some things, but to fear some others. And fear is a very sane, a very rational, a very appropriate response to some situations. The place that we're going to focus our attention this morning is on a biblical command to fear. To fear. For most of us, the problem with fear is that our life is consumed with fearing all the wrong things. All the wrong things. And that's what we'll look at next week when the scripture says, don't fear. But what we're looking at this week is what it says to fear. Let me read, starting at Luke 12. We'll be going through a lot of various scriptures this morning related to this. But I want to start in Luke 12. In Luke 12, the beginning of the chapter, Jesus is talking about Jewish religious leaders who are going to end up persecuting his followers. So he's warning his followers ahead of time, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to face opposition. But this is what he says in verse 4. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. This sounds fairly radical to us and clearly this is a perspective issue. Don't fear those who can kill your body. If, If you're in front of someone who has a gun and they can shoot you and you are fearful, that would be appropriate. Jesus is not saying that it's absolutely inappropriate to have fear of those who can harm you. But this is the contrast, verse 5. In contrast to those who can only kill you, he says in verse 5, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one, capital O, who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him, exclamation point. Again, he's not saying if you're faced with murder or physical harm or something that fear is not an appropriate response. But this is the thought. Your life on the earth, you and I are here, we're just here for a short duration. The wink of an eye, Scripture says in some places, a vapor. Our life here is very, very short. 
compared to eternity, it's not even measurable. So the worst anyone can do to you on planet Earth is they can make your short life a little shorter. And Jesus says, you know what, that's in perspective. That's not that big a deal. So don't live in fear or terror of those who can only end your short life and make it a little shorter. In contrast to that, though, he says, listen, this is the one you need to fear. The one he says to fear is the one who can not only shorten your life, your short life anyway, on planet Earth. He's the one who has authority and power to place you for eternity in hell. And Jesus, he pulls no punches. He says, fear him. Don't fear men who can only kill you. That's a big deal to most of us. It's not insignificant. But in the big picture, Jesus says that's all they can do. You don't need to worry about that. The one you need to be concerned with, the one you need to fear, is the one who has power. Go back to our definition. Remember, fear is that response to a power, the situation, a person, a thing that has power to harm you. So Jesus says the one that can really harm you, that's God. He has power and authority to to destroy your life, that is, to place you in hell, outside the bounds of all goodness and all life forever. Jesus says he is the one to fear. Don't worry about men. Fear God. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes written by Solomon, one of the the wisdom books, like Proverbs. And Solomon has described life in this book of Ecclesiastes. And he's talked about some upsides and some downsides. And he gets to chapter 12 and he says, I'm drawing some conclusions here. And in verse 13 of chapter 12, Solomon says, The conclusion, looking at life, big and little, near and far, the conclusion when all has been heard is, Fear God and keep His commandments. Or obey him. This applies to every person. The wisest guy who's lived on the earth. <clears throat> he had money and ability and supernaturally given wisdom to look at life and figure things out. And he blew it in some big ways himself. But when he looks back out of his, out of his search for wisdom, he says in the final analysis, this is the conclusion I've drawn, fear God and obey him. Keep his commandments. That's the bottom line. Fear God, keep his commandments. Switching Testaments, uh, Revelation 14, this is the period during the tribulation. There's lots of judgment going on on the earth, a very, just a terrible time to be around. Lots of bad things going on. But an angel flies from heaven and says this, with the judgment, the destruction that's going on around them, the angel says with a loud voice, fear God. Don't fear the Antichrist. Don't fear loss of food. Don't even fear the judgments in this case. He says, fear God and give him glory. Fear God and give him glory. If we ask the question then, why should we fear God? And go back to our definition. God is the ultimate power in the universe. There's no other power that can oppose him. So if we said fear is a response to a power that can harm us, God is omnipotent, omnipotent. He has all power. He is absolutely the only fitting supreme object of anyone's fear. It's God, because God has all power. And Jesus said in Luke 12 that power can be used against us. 
ultimately to cast us in hell. So he not only has all power, but he has all power which can be exercised against us in a way that harms us. So God is the only fitting supreme object of your fear or of mine. And we're enjoined in both Testaments to fear God, to fear God. One of the questions I came up with, and I don't know if you have also, is uh, does this apply to Christians? Does this apply to Christians? Should Christians fear God? If we're saved, God's our Father, Jesus is our brother, we're saved, we're going to heaven, sounds good to me, what's left to fear? Let me read you a few verses out of the New Testament, all addressed to Christians. Acts 9.31. This is Luke's description of the early church. And listen to what he says. The church throughout all Judea, Galilee, Samaria, enjoyed peace, being built up, going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. One of the descriptions of the early church is they were being built up. This is all positive, by the way. This is not supposed to be seen as a negative. One of the positive aspects of the early church was that they feared God. And it's interesting that this is coupled with the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk a little bit more about this later. The fear of God for Christians is an is a appropriate attitude towards the God who's not only our Father, but this all-powerful creator of the universe. It's still appropriate. And in Acts 9, comfort is coupled with fear in the early church. In fact, I would argue that the comfort is impossible without the fear. 2 Corinthians 7. Here Paul is writing to a Gentile church. And he says, Therefore, having these promises, 2 Corinthians 7.1, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness, how? In the fear of God. Chapter 6, he's been talking about avoiding uh, situations in which those who are believers are hooking up with those who aren't in a way that tries to combine moral light with moral darkness. So here he's enjoining on them holiness, and he says, Perfect, grow. New Testament use here, perfect, doesn't mean you and I don't sin. It just means that we're mature in holiness. Holiness is being set apart to God's use, and this is accomplished in an appropriate fear of God. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Lastly, of these, this trio of verses, 1 Peter 2, 17, Peter again, writing to Christian, says, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So in the New Testament, written to people who have trusted Christ, they're still enjoined or described as those who are or should fear God, fearing God. There's a verse in 1 John 4 that says not to fear, related to God and judgment. I ask myself, what about 1 John 4.18? Do you guys know this verse? Perfect love casts out fear. Fear involves fear of judgment. I'll read it. There's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. The one who fears is not perfected in love. So you'd say, well, maybe then we're not supposed to fear. Somehow this doesn't work with these other verses. This passage in 1 John 4 really is talking about a judgment related to our standing before God. As a Christian, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have passed out of judgment into life. The same 
person who wrote this verse, wrote John's Gospel, says that in John 5. You've passed out of judgment into life. There's no fear for a Christian related to our sin as far as judgment in hell goes, or to fear of eternal standing before God. In fact, later in 1 John 5, John says, I'm writing these things to you who believed in the name of the Son of God so that you'll know you have eternal life. You've believed in Jesus, guess what? You've got eternal life. So related to fear of judgment for our standing before God, that's over. If you've trusted Christ, if you know him as your Savior, you're going to heaven, not based on your works, but on his. The only work Jesus says that we're to do before God is to believe in his Son. Having done that, fear related to judgment and hell, that's over. That's history. That's past tense. That doesn't apply to us. And in that sense, perfect love casts out our fear. We're united to God. We have his Spirit. His Spirit is a stamp on us. We're his property. We're going to heaven. He has hold of our right hand, Psalm 73. No fear related to this. But going back to those verses we already looked at, there's still appropriate fear of God. Think of it this way, at least a couple different ways. You know, in any of the passages of the Scripture where you see humans suddenly confronted or face-to-face with the living God, what do they do? They just fall apart. They fall down. In fact, in in eternity, it will only be God's enabling and His perfecting us that will allow us to stand in His presence. The deal, and this is what I mean about scratching the surface, you know, as I talk about the fear of God, apart from God really revealing himself to us in this way, it's hard to say. You know, if I stand before the cage at the zoo and I see that big lion with those big claws, I'm I'm wow. You know, if I get close to him, if I see a picture in a book, it's like no big deal. I think sometimes it's like like that for us with God. We talk about it, but when you read the events in the scripture where someone's actually face to face with him, suddenly you get a sense, man, they can't stand. They're falling apart. Back to 1 John and these other verses to Christians, there's still the sense, listen, our God, uh, C.S. Lewis said in his, uh, about Aslan, he's not a tame lion. He's powerful. And when you're confronted with him, his power is so overwhelming that even though we're saved and we're his children and we have his spirit, he is so powerful, it's still overwhelming. It's still a terrifying, fearful thing to face the God of the universe. So there's still that appropriate fear about who your dad is. But also there's this fear too, I think appropriately so. Paul uses this fear in First and Second Corinthians. You and I do not stand before God related to where we spend eternity if we've trusted Jesus. We're going to heaven. That's settled. We do stand before the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the works of your life and mine. Let's say I'm going to Washburn University and I've added up my test scores, as I'm sure my daughter's done, did, And I know I'm passing the test. No matter what happens on this final, I'm passed the test. I have no fear about failure in my test. I'm passed. But you know what? I might still have a little appropriate fear about studying for that final because I know I'm not done with the class yet. You and I, we're going to stand. We've got that final exam, so to speak, when we stand before the Lord Jesus and he gives the trial to the works of your life and mine. He sets fire to it, so to speak. That's what Paul says. And so we're still like those students who still have that final to undergo. We're still wanting to finish strong. And there's an appropriate fear, I think, related to that also. We're going to see Jesus face to face, and he's going to say, let's take a look at what you did in the life I gave you on the earth. There's an appropriate fearfulness to that. That's still a good thing. So, even as Christians, 
we're enjoined, we're admonished, we're encouraged to fear God, not because of the fear of hell, but because of who he is, and that we still are going to stand before him and have our works tried before him. I'm going to look briefly at two passages that are at least a description or maybe a brief example of fearing God. What does that look like and what does it produce? Genesis 22, an Old Testament example, one of two. Genesis 22, one of the great heroes of the Bible, Abraham, at this point in the story, has his promised son. He's got Isaac. And you remember, he's 100 years old before he's given Isaac. Sarah's 90. He's waited for this baby, the promised baby, for 25 years. He's got Ishmael also, the child he thought he was going to make God's promise happen. God said, that's not the one. You'll still have one by you and Sarah, and he has. So what he has wanted most in his life has come to pass. Isaac is a young man now, and God says one day, take your son, march up to the mountain, Mount Moriah, and offer him as a sacrifice there to me. If you read the story, frankly, it sounds very matter-of-fact. It doesn't even say Abram doesn't fall on the ground, he doesn't whimper, he doesn't cajole. It just says he goes. And at this point in the story, at verse 12 in chapter 22, Isaac is bound by his father, lying on the altar, and Abraham's hand with a knife is raised to slay his son and to offer him as God commanded. And at that point, verse 12, he said, God, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. God says, when he sees Abraham's willingness to offer a son, that the willingness was testimony to the fact that Abraham had an appropriate fear of God. What demonstrates it? Abraham says to God, anything that I have is yours. God, you can command me to do anything and I'll do it because I am yours. Everything I have is yours. I fear you appropriately and I acknowledge that through obedience. Positively, Genesis 22 is a great example that an appropriate fear of God produces in you and I an attitude that says we're not our own, we're God's, and we obey. Fear of God produces obedience. Appropriate fear of God produces obedience. Positively, we obey God. That's what Abraham did. Exodus 20, second Old Testament example of this. We've mentioned this passage, I think, a few times in the last several months. I hope I'm not wearing it out, but Exodus 20 is God's formal introduction of himself to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai when he's giving the commandments. Three verses, starting at verse 18. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. This is as God descends in glory on Mount Sinai. When the people saw it, they trembled and they stood at a distance and they said to Moses, you speak to us yourself and we'll listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. 
For God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. Now, it's interesting. They're afraid. And on one level, Moses says, don't be afraid. They were afraid that in God's presence, they were just going to die. They were going to be slain if they listened to God any longer or were this close to his presence as he came down on the mountain. They're afraid they're going to die. Moses says, you're not going to die. God's not coming here to kill you. You're not going to die. So don't be afraid of dying right now. Don't be afraid of that kind of fear right now. But he does say this terrible, overwhelming, glorious presence of God coming down on the mountain was meant to instill fear. Not that they die that instant, but fear of God himself so that they would not sin. God wanted to impress them with his glory and his power so that they would be impressed and fear appropriately and fear to sin. 2 Corinthians, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That's the thought here. God wanted them to be afraid of him in this sense so that they would fear to sin. So not only does the fear of God in an appropriate manner establish obedience for you and I as we recognize who God is and his power and his claim on us, but it also keeps us from sin. Positively, it engenders obedience. Negatively, it keeps us from doing the wrong things. keeps us from sin. Let me read you a few verses that demonstrate the benefit of fearing God, the benefit of fearing God. And frankly, there, this is a very, very short list. There's tons of verses that deal with this very thing. Most of these are out of Psalms and Proverbs. Psalm 34, verse 9 says, To those who fear him there is no want or no lack, no unmet need. That for those who fear God, God provides. Provision comes from fearing God. Psalm 85, 9 says, Salvation is near to those who fear him. God delivers those who fear him. He provides salvation. Psalm 103 says, The Lord has compassion on those who fear him. You know, if you want compassion from the one who has the power to bless or hurt, it says that his compassion is on those who fear him. Proverbs 10.27, the fear of the Lord prolongs life. Most of us would like to live long on the earth. This proverb says that long life comes to those who fear God. Proverbs 14.26, the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence. We'll talk about this more next week, but it's interesting that if you have appropriate fear of God, you don't fear anyone else. You don't fear anything else. Because God, the right object for your fear, is your fear. And what that does is it leaves you confident in the rest of your life. Appropriate fear of God leaves you free of fear in the other areas of your life so that you have confidence. Proverbs 14, 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. If you want to experience life qualitatively here, fear God. And you get life from it, not just duration, but quality. Proverbs 16.6 says, The fear of the Lord keeps away from evil. Not just you in sin, but it keeps you away from trouble. The trouble that evil brings. If you read the newspapers any day of the week, you'll find people 
experiencing evil and trouble because they didn't fear God and they didn't avoid evil. Any day of the newspaper, as well as the, the scripture stories too. Proverbs 19.23, I like this one. I had trouble sleeping last night. Fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. Again, the thought is, if I fear God appropriately, I'm not afraid of anyone else. And so when I lie my head down at night to go to sleep, I'm at peace. I can go to bed and sleep peacefully. Psalm 127 says, depending on your translation, God gives sleep to his beloved. Or while you're asleep, he gives to you. Either way. But it's the thought that when I fear God properly, I'm at peace. I have rest. And I get rest. And then Proverbs 22.4, the reward of humility, a right estimation of ourself, and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Wealth, honor, and life are tied to fearing God and humility. And again, that's just having an appropriate view of God and ourselves. And lastly, Psalm 90, great psalm, Psalm of Moses. Moses says, Lord, who gives you the fear that you're due? It's like, Lord, we could never fear you enough. Uh, You are the ultimate object of fear, and it's as if we can never fear you enough. But he says, the next line down, he says, uh, so teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. In other words, Lord, even if we never quite get there to fear you the way we should, if we fear you at all, it gives us wisdom so that we know how to live life on the earth. So long life, qualitatively life, confidence, sleep, rest, peace, all these things, Scripture says, come from the root of properly, appropriately fearing God, fearing God. When we fear God, we recognize his power and authority, and we appropriately respond to him in fear and reverence. That's rational. It's sane. It's appropriate. God is the appropriate object of our rational fear. We haven't talked about this, and I won't go into this, but it really, it's biblically impossible to love God if you don't fear him. God's very nature engenders fear. We're creatures. He's the creator. We're limited. He's all-powerful. You cannot properly love God if you don't fear him. We should fear him. To know him appropriately is to fear him. You can't love him if you don't know him. To know him is to fear him. To know him is also to love him. The fear of God does not hinder loving God. In fact, if you go back, in fact, let me go to Psalm thirty-three, eighteen. Listen to this verse because it encapsulates both thoughts. It says, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. He's watching out for those who fear him on those who hope for his loving kindness. Those who know God well enough to fear him also know him well enough to trust him, to entrust themselves to him, to hope in him. In other words, if you know him well, you fear him. And if you know him well, you also trust him because you know he's benevolent and compassionate and gracious and merciful. So they're tied together. Those who know him are the ones that can love him, and those who love him are the ones that fear him. They're tied together. Let me close the passages with this one out of Malachi This is an outstanding passage. Last book of the Old Testament. Malachi is written when the Jews are back in Israel. The temple's rebuilt. They've been restored, but things are not what they should be. And Malachi is a book in which God's warning them, get right, do right again. And he also warns them of coming judgment. 
Listen to what he says. Malachi 3 and into chapter 4. Malachi 3.16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. There were, in this messy time of Israel, there still were those who feared him. They respected him. They obeyed him. And this says they spoke to one another. This doesn't mean they were just hanging out together. The thought here is that they're encouraging each other because they fear God to do right in a nation that's not doing right. So those who feared the Lord, they got together. They encouraged each other. They spoke to one another. Look at what God did. And the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. You talk about Santa Claus making a list and checking it twice. These folks who feared God, God in heaven looked down and he wrote their names in heaven in his book. Those who feared him, he recorded their names. He paid attention to those who feared him. This is, a, this is an overwhelming thought. Psalm 34 says that God's ear is attentive to the cry of the righteous. This is along that same line. Those who feared him. God wasn't far away in heaven. He was looking down, intimately associated with this group, and he says, whatever, angels or whatever, write their names down. Record their names in my book in heaven because, verse 17, they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession or make them my jewels. They're my treasures, those who fear me and esteem my name. And I'm going to spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Those guys who fear my name, fear me and esteem my name. These next two verses deal with judgment. He says, so you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, in which all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be as stubble. And that day that is coming will, will burn them up, leaving them neither root nor branch. So God says, during this troubled time in Israel, the nation's not obeying him, a few are. He writes their name down and he says they're mine. And when judgment comes, when this fiery furnace of judgment comes, and when I'm consuming everyone and everything around them in the fire of my judgment, guess what they'll be doing? Verse 2 in chapter 4, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like young calves. God says, these guys who fear me, they're my jewels. They're my possession. I'm recording their names in my book in heaven. And when the time of judgment comes, you know, some who see Jesus at his second coming, some are going to be what? Terrified because he's come in judgment. But others aren't going to be terrified. Why? Because they're waiting for him. Because they fear his name. Because they esteem him. And for them, the same occasion, Jesus coming, brings hope. It's their deliverance. It's their restoration. And instead of being stubble in a fiery furnace, they're calves. Have you guys ever seen calves? They are so funny. You know, you look at those big old fat cows in the pasture, and you can't believe that they came from these little calves that skip about in the pasture. They are so cute, and they can jump, and they're amazing. 
But that's the thought. Fiery furnace of judgment on one hand, but these guys, they don't have a care in the world. They're skipping around out in the pasture. And that's the difference. And the difference is, God says, these folks are the ones who fear him. And they esteem his name. Fearing God is an absolutely appropriate, rational, sane thing for you and I to do. In fact, you remember back to the definition? If you don't fear God, you know what? Intellectually or morally, you're without your reason. I'm without my reason. In years past or in centuries past, you know, one of the greatest evangelistic tools was preaching the fear of God. This was absolutely appropriate. Because those guys understood that if people knew God and knew his power to judge, as Jesus said in Luke 12, they would fear him. They would flee judgment. The fear of God was appropriate. It was understood to be appropriate. And for you and I today, although Jesus is our Savior and we're going to heaven, we should still live in this appropriate, proper fear and reverence of God, our Father, and Jesus, our Savior. Absolutely appropriate. In closing, I was trying to think of an illustration, and uh, again, just not thinking of anything that quite lit my fire, but uh, this is one I came up with uh, Christmas season. I've watched Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol twice in the last week. It's a great story. If you guys know, there's two or three movie versions of this. There's an animated version of this. It's a great, it's an outstanding story. If you remember the story, Ebenezer Scrooge is a guy who, like the judge in Luke's gospel, fears neither God nor man. He fears no one. Money is the center of his life, and he has lots of it. He can buy anything he wants. He's in control of his life. And on Christmas Eve, this old miser, in total control, doesn't fear God, doesn't fear man, has an appearance by his old partner, Jacob Marley. And Jacob's appearance is a little amiss. He's been dead six or seven years, and he's tied up in his grave cloth, and he is toting chains and heavy metal weights behind him. And he tells Ebenezer the weights, basically are the sins of his life. And now he's dragging them around in the afterlife because he didn't do right during his lifetime on earth. He tells Ebenezer he's going to have three visitors that night, the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. Now, Ebenezer gets the visits of the first two, and he goes with the ghost of Christmas past and, pre- and present, and he has some appropriate responses, and he's touched, and he's affected. But he's not transformed. And he tells them, hey, guys, thanks, you know, and I'm ready to go home now. But when the ghost of Christmas future comes, things change. And when he is given a vision of his impending death, and his destitute spiritual condition, and the agony that awaits him, the chains that his partner was carrying, multiplied over for him. And it culminates when he's taken to the graveyard and he's shown the gravestone with his name. And he knows his future is to die unsung, unloved, without God and without hope, in this fear and this terror of this Christless eternity He repents, and he's converted, and he becomes a new man. And then it says at the end of the story, if anyone knew how to keep Christmas then, it was him. Because this appropriate fear 
engenders this appropriate love that carries him through the rest of his life. But his transformation came not from anything else, but this fear of where he was headed. You could say this appropriate fear of God and a future without God. And then the fear turns into appropriate love. And then you see his life transformed. And God bless Tiny Tim. And Tiny Tim's rescued. And Bob Cratchit's life is transformed. Because Scrooge is, is transformed through fear, appropriate fear, which breeds appropriate love towards God and towards his fellow man. Let's pray. Lord, I am just struck in my own life as well as the lives of others that Father almost always were fearing the wrong things and the wrong people. Lord, you are omnipotent. You have all power. You spoke the worlds into existence. You hold the universe together by the power of your will. You will sit in judgment on all of mankind. Lord, you have power, as Jesus said, to redeem for eternity or to cast into hell. Lord, you are supremely and only the worthy object of our fear, as well as ultimately the worthy object of our love and affection and devotion. Father, I pray for each one of us that you would give us a vision big enough of you to fear you as we should. Father, a fear in us that produces comfort from your spirit, obedience, avoidance of sin. Lord, to fear you really is the beginning of knowing you properly and loving you as we should. Father, might each one of us know both the fear of you and the love of you. And might passages like Malachi 3 and 4 be areas we meditate on to consider you, Lord, your great terror, your great power, your great love, and the benefit of fearing you and knowing you and serving you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.